Puckering Down with Peter Schorsch has a special guest on, and this is probably going to be a two-parter if um, if it goes the way I think my usual conversations with our next guest uh, usually go. Um, we try to do 15-minute pods. I don't think we're going to be able to keep that all or get that all in under that timeline. So joining me now is my dear, dear friend, Steve Ancor. Good morning. Steve is a noted Democratic pollster and consultant. Um, I always talk about him with other people. He's one of my 10. Uh, he is one of the people that when I have one of my loony, crazy ideas, uh, he's one of the 10 people uh, that I run them by. That list changes from time to time, but he's been part of that 10 for, um, for uh, I guess now like four or five years. And so many of the products that you see, including this podcast and other podcasts, um, usually they start off with the crazy idea. Steve says, no, well, what if you did this and that? And we, you know, we storyboard that kind of stuff up in our heads and we come up with a little bit of a product. So, um, but that's not why we're having him on. And the reason why, as we approach episode 50, um, I wanted to make this kind of like a special episode. Steve is the... And I did like how this was framed in the newspaper. You are the romantic partner. Uh, I like romantic partner. Yeah, that was Boy, boyfriend sounds so um, seventh grade. Uh, it also sounds like a crime victim. You know, like the boyfriend Steve Vancor. You know, it's like right. well, let's look at the at the boyfriend um, of of Kristen Jacobs, the state lawmaker from South Florida, who left this earth uh, last Saturday morning. And so I, I've been asking Steve to come on uh, on the pod. And he's like, you know, I'm kind of busy. I'm hunkered down in a different way. And so I've invited him on. Uh, this is going to be a pod about Kristen's legacy as much as anything else, what they have been going through, what it's like um, in the, you know, because I imagine there's been there was some impact in terms of travel and so forth. But Steve is just also a smart guy. It's going to be hard not to get his takes on some of the things um, that are going on around us. So I'm going to start off uh, gently and just ask Steve, how are you doing right now? Uh, better than I better than I thought I would. I'm getting a lot of advice, as you can imagine, and I'm trying to take it, uh, which is not my strong suit. I um, I've been uh, waking up early. Uh, like as though I have to go into the office. Um, this is going to sound so silly, but I'm making the bed and taking a shower first thing every morning. Um, cause otherwise I would just lay in bed and cry all day and move, getting up, moving and actually opening up the laptop and, and calling in for work and doing things. And everybody's been so nice, Peter. They're like, no, no, dude, you don't need to work. Don't, don't call us now. We can put this off. And I'm like, look, I need the distraction. I've been hunkered down with Kristen, as you know, since pretty much the end of session or near the end of session and uh, uh, kind of getting back into the world a little bit, one one small step at a time, trying not to, you know, things will pop up periodically. I'll see something uh, that'll that'll remind me of her. And in, in this home that we built together, every square inch is Kristen. So I'm constantly reminded of her presence and, uh, but finding little notes and stuff like that, it just, you know, makes you cry again. Uh, but I'm doing good. I, I'm, I'm, you know, trying to get back, back into the world. And, and this podcast is part of it. You know, you had asked me yesterday, by the way, what, what are the, what, what stood out? 
the number of people reaching out by text, phone call, email from every square inch of the state uh, and repeatedly. Just how are you doing? How Kristen meant so much to me. The weird coincidences. I was on a conference call yesterday and this one, two days ago, sorry, and this woman was actually in the governor's office working on the shark fin bill. And she's recently changed jobs and we reconnected and she was like totally tearful. She's like, oh, my gosh, she was so fantastic. So that's been helpful. Uh, the other part is the the coverage uh, of her life and her legacy, which you were a key part of. Thank you. Uh, has been unbelievable uh, and it's coast to coast. I mean, this state has covered Kristen's legacy very well. That's been very uplifting. Um, I think the people that are listening to this uh, pop-up pod are going to know who she is, but they're, um, as the audience does grow a little bit, um, who was Kristen Jacobs? Uh, you know, like, let's take a step back and um, talk about who she was. Well, let me get her story and try to one minute or less. She came to Florida with two young children in a, in a horrible marriage and moved to Fort Lauderdale, was was amazed by the water. She couldn't believe water was bubbling out of the ground. It was springs. Um, and then when he took another job in Clearwater, she realized she had to start her life over and went over to Women in Distress, uh, Broward County-based uh, help group. They took her in, gave her shelter. Uh, helped her get back on her feet. It's an amazing story because three years later, she's a county commissioner in the second largest county in the state. Mm -hmm. And three years after that is the mayor of that county. Uh, And I believe it was three or four years after that uh, is asked by President Obama uh, to sit on a task force. Uh, She sits in this task force meeting She's telling me the story. She says, to my right is a four-star general. To my left is a woman who is one of the first pilots in space. And uh, I'm thinking they're going to call me out at one point and say, ma'am, this is a mistake that you're even here. Uh, And within the first four hours, they made her the chair of that task force. Uh, And that's, I think that tells you who Kristen was. She twice elected mayor of Broward uh, County and then got termed out. Came to the house. That's where I met her. Ran her campaign, the state house. Uh, and she is known, and if you look at her legacy as- Hold on for I, one second. Oh, is, ahead, is, that, is that your move? Um, you date your uh, candidate clients? Is that one of your- <laughs> <laughs> You know you're going to get it if you're dating. Like, this is not going to be just the easiest podcast. I've got to so still- I gotta, I gotta, <laughs> let's, blame, let's put blame where blame is due. Uh, Senator, Rader, Senator Rader insisted that he, she hire me. Uh, she didn't know me, and her and uh, uh, Eric Johnson and I co-ran her campaign. And Eric's like, "I'm never referring a client to you ever again. You take them, and you really take them." So I've never <laughs> done that before, and I hope never to do that again. <laughs> so no, it's not a standard operating procedure. And it really wasn't until way after she got elected that we realized we had a romantic interest with each other, which was a little over three years ago. Um, and so no, I don't. I, that's not normal operating procedure. But, you know, she was known as an environmentalist, but many of the environmentalists didn't really like her because she thought about not just compromise, but consensus and would move things forward. Uh, uh, an ocean reef protection zone that also honored and respected fishermen. The shark fin bill honored and respected the commercial fishermen who, 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 who fin sharks legally uh, found a way to, 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 to get, get the 
bill passed with the consensus. And, and so she's known as an environmentalist, but also uh, she, her transportation was her big deal. People was her big deal and making people comfortable in this world and water. Uh, everybody knows her as the water, the water expert. She knew everything. Her biggest, you know, other than the Southeast Climate Compact, which the president hailed as a, as a national international model for cooperation and is being replicated all over the country, the C-51 reservoir, perhaps the yeah. most boring issue you could imagine, I'm will, will as is, yeah, exactly. is, is one of the most important water bills to pass in Florida's history because it preserves and protects water for Southeast Florida for probably another 20 years. And it took 31 cities signing off on the deal in two counties. Uh, do, and uh, folks. Just real quick, you do public relations also, right? Yeah, yeah, public so relations. when they came to you and they, or when you started working, or excuse me, when Kristen started talking about this C-51, did it ever come up to you to like, hey, you know, this would be a much better bill if you went back and like gave it like, you know, the like right now, PPP, the, uh, you know, uh, Employee Protection Act or whatever it is. It's like, did you ever think about like renaming it? Because the C-51 is like one of the most substantial pieces of legislation or and just frameworks that we've ever come up with. But I bet you 99.9% of folks don't know it. They don't even know what you're talking about. Right. I mean, isn't that so, you know, exactly right. But the, the audience there, you know, whenever you're doing public relations, you've got to look at what is my audience and who is my audience? The audience there were the commissions, the all the city commissions that were affected, the local governments. They know what C-51 is. And by the time I joined that journey, remember, this was a bill she began working on as a county commissioner and then brought it to the legislature and negotiated with the water management district. Um, uh, the, the Florida Association of Counties, and of course DEP uh, and FWC on on how to manage all that. So no, but on another issue, the shark fin bill, we did. I did say to her, we have to rebrand this because it was always uh, the first time she did it, it was about the poor sharks. Nobody likes sharks, right? There's <laughs> say that. Uh, but uh, sharks aren't these aren't baby seals that we're clubbing, right? Uh, and once once we rebranded it correctly as jobs, all the dive shop operators that like to take people out, Florida has $220 million a year in shark-related tourism. Once we began to explain that to the public and to the leadership, people, we got people's attention. So we're trying to rebrand something with Kristen was, for, for such a policy wonk was always a challenge. How did she pass Again, you know, the audience not knowing. Oh. Um, how did she die? The, the language, the vernacular of uh, of this is always, you know, how did she, you know, fade away? And it's, no, how did she die? Well, what was the so, cause of death so here? The cause of death was cancer. She had uh, a certain type of colon cancer um, that Kristen's of Scottish heritage was, was an athletic, very athletic person. She either ran or, and we fell in love uh, on bike trails biking for hours, hours on the bike. And uh, th this, this particular type of cancer afflicts um, Af people of African-American descent, people who eat too much meat, who smoke and are obese. Okay. So she's, by Scottish heritage, she, she was a redhead with very pale skin, uh, thin, athletic, and uh, mostly a vegetarian. I called her a, um, a bacon bit vegetarian, right? She didn't like that expression. 
Uh, if you put bacon bits on her salad, she wasn't going to turn it away, right? Um, so the cancer, uh, they removed it, but they forgot about one little part, and uh, it came back. She had to go through extensive surgery, extensive surgery at Mayo Clinic to remove it again. Uh, and then we went back in October thinking she needed some touch-up surgery because she was feeling a lot of pain. And it's when they told her she had uh, inoperable tumors that were throughout her intestinal area. They put her on immunotherapy, and it worked miraculously for uh, about four months and maybe five months. They were stunned. And then um, on March 16th, they told her that it was no longer working and they were ceasing all treatment. So, but wait a second. Ex- I saw her that last week of session. The whole world saw her, you know, as she, yep. you know, the 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 capstone of her legislative career, the the shark fin bill, which she had worked on. I'm sorry, but she looked good. You know, I mean, I know she's your, you know, uh, your girlfriend, but she looked good. She looked, I mean, she looked healthy. Even, I mean, I I can't imagine what kind of pain she was in, but. I wouldn't have known, right? Um, so she, at that point in time, she was on a, a, uh, a low-dose fentanyl patch and taking um, uh, OxyContin periodically. That day, she insisted on taking nothing and taking off the patch because she wanted to be as clear-headed as possible. She went from the floor to her office where she absolutely collapsed. Kristen's life, I, I start with the story about being in an abusive relationship and digging herself out. It actually goes back further. She, you know, um, she was the a Me Too person of, of the highest order in terms of uh, people take, trying to take advantage of her. I'll put it like that. She suffered a spinal condition when she was 17, spent a year in a body cast. This is truly, she had, literally had a steel spine. That's how they corrected it. She and she always thought of herself. People would say, oh, you're so brave. She goes, I'm not brave. I'm terrified. Oh, you're so strong. I'm not strong. I'm weak. But without a doubt, Peter, you, you're right. You saw her and everybody was like, oh, my God, she looked amazing. She looked fantastic. She had her conference for her 11th annual uh, Southeast Climate Compact. She was the keynote there. They gave her a Lifetime Achievement Award. And not a single person realized how sick she was. Everyone kept coming up to her going, I love what you've done with your hair. This was a woman who had a big flowing red locks of hair comes to this thing with like basically a buzz cut. And she had to tell people, well, it's because of my chemotherapy. I lost my hair. And they were like, wait, you're sick? So she was tough, Peter. We Listen, I, I, I had expression throughout all this watching how tough she was that if men had to give birth, we'd have about 17 people on the planet right now. Uh, she was just tough, tough, tough as nails. So her final days were surrounded by her family in her own bed at our house here in Tallahassee. Um, loved constantly. When we brought in hospice, um, they were literally like, well, what can we do to help? And I'm like, just make sure we have a steady supply of the drugs she needs. And they barely, they just checked it out. They were like, hey, uh, meaning they were like, we don't need to come by. She looks great. We had somebody rubbing her feet, rubbing her back. Uh, I, I have a network, as you know, of physicians that we've talked to, including the hospice doctors, about how to keep her comfortable. And her 20, tw- final 24 hours were not comfortable, but her body eventually just gave in. Uh, she was not really with us in the last two weeks, had no food for two weeks. Um, 
and to see someone so strong fade like that was really I'll never I'll I'll never forget it. It was heart wrenching. So when I asked what how you were hunkering down, you were literally on next to someone on their deathbed um, with her family and her kids, and we took rotating shifts. Um, so it was it was it was it was horrific and sad simultaneous to being the most wonderful way to die, right? In your own bed, cared for, loved. Uh, and she has three amazing kids and, and a daughter-in-law who were very, very attentive. And so, yeah, I was literally hunkered down with her uh, here at the house. So tie it into this podcast. Was her death process impacted by the the, the pandemic, the shutdown? Was it tougher to get uh, things that you needed. Um, did you run into any trouble yourself? Like, I don't know, going to CVS none, or not none, or anything? None, none whatsoever, except there was one incident where I'm on the phone with a nurse and I'm like, look, um, can I go up on the fentanyl? Can I go up on the, can we, we do on the morphine? We have uh, had methadone in the house. Um, what, what, what are the options here? Because she's feeling extreme pain. And the nurse said, why don't I come out? And I said, I don't think I want you to come out. And when you to, to specifically answer your question about COVID, and she was largely unaware of the COVID crisis going on, which was just an interesting contrast. But um, I said, I don't think, Karen, I don't think I want you to come out. She said, why not? I said, because what are your options? Increase your dosages. I can do that via phone. Your other option is to put her in the hospice house, put her in the emergency room, or have her admitted to the hospital. If you do that, we won't be able to be at her bedside because we're on lockdown. And I'm, mm. that, that's not what she right. would have wanted. So and it so, impacted you by default in a way that. Yeah. By, and it's like, look, we, we've got this. And she said, look, and when she came the next day, she's like, look, she's in remarkable shape, given everything she's being obviously tended. She said, you make my job easy. Uh, and I, and seriously, we were cleaning her, taking care of her, grooming her, doing everything uh, that one would want of somebody they desperately loved. And so they were like, there's nothing else to do. And so, and yeah. She was not planning on a funeral or a gathering afterwards, correct? Well, she kept, <laughs> it's very interesting because we, we had extended conversations as you can imagine about planning a lot of things. By the way, you know, dying takes a lot of paperwork. You can't just check out. You got to do a lot of things before you do. I say that a little tongue in cheek. And she kept putting it off. She didn't want to do those things. And so she wanted what, she was very hesitant to talk about that because she was an eternal optimist. Uh, I think I told you the story where um, she bought 24 champagne glasses. And for Kristen, she wasn't much of a drinker. Champagne was about celebration. And why 24? Well, they were going on, they were on closeout at West Elm. There were these cute little glasses. And she says, you've got to buy more than you need because they break. And over time, with all the celebrations you're going to have in your life, you need to be able to replace them. And since they're closing them out, there's no more. The point being, literally until the final two weeks, she was optimistic about things. And she talked about her next session. When we talked about you're not running for re-election, that was a heart-wrenching conversation for her. Uh, so we never really planned a celebration of her life. But we are. Um, what I want to do is uh, sometime uh, in the fall or the spring uh, do something in Broward County. There's a hundred people who want to do something for her. I, I, and there's another hundred people up here who've 
you know, I've, I've held, I said, okay. Uh, like our dear friend Scrivener Watson called me, he says, dude, anything, anything at all. I said, Scrivener, I'm going to make you the chairman of the committee to have a reception for Kristen in the spring. And he's like, dude, anything. Cause there's so many people loved her. I've got like 20 chairs of that committee now. Um, but what we're going to do on the anniversary of her death, we're going to take her ashes to um, Kissimmee River State Park, where she loved to camp. She was an avid camper and hiker. And uh, we're going to break the law, uh, and we're going to put her ashes in the Kissimmee River so she flows into the headwaters of the Everglades and back to Broward County. Because, you know, it, it, it captures all of it, her family, uh, camping, hiking, uh, water. Uh, and as we all know, the, the first the first screw up with the uh, Everglades was straightening out the Kissimmee River and uh, they're fixing it now in some part because of what she wanted, uh, some of the work she did. And then she'll flow into Lake Okeechobee and uh, eventually make her way back to uh, Broward County into the Everglades. Don't you think uh, you've made a grave, grave, grave mistake uh, assigning anything that requires responsibility to Screvin Watson. <laughs> like I said, I have 19 other chairs. No, okay. But you know, Screvin used to be a former business partner of mine. Uh, when he puts his mind to something, uh, uh, he's fantastic at it, and his heart is 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 you know so big. So no, I don't think it's a mistake trusting Screvin. Um, um, you want to be one of the co-chairs, Peter? I'm in charge of publicity. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> is he? Is the shark fin bill, was that signed yet by the governor? Or is it hasn't still- been transmitted yet. Ah, okay. So there is still that. God, way to bring this up. That's going to be a hell of a day. Uh, the, the bill signing for that, right? That's just going to be a barrel full of monkeys. I don't know that he's going to you know, have a signing ceremony given everything that's going on. It would be kind of weird to you know have a thing. He wanted to come down to... Uh, uh, Nova, where the Guy Harvey Institute is, uh, and uh, do an event related to it, but just things got in the way. Uh, uh, hope he'll sign it or let it become law without a signature, but uh, I, I think it's good. It's a bill that passed 160 to nothing should be relatively easy for him to allow to become law. I'm just thinking that would be the ultimate trolling. It's just like, ah, you know, I don't know about this bill. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Veto, veto the Kristen Jacobs Shark Protection Act or Ocean Protection Act. Yeah. All right. Um, we're going to take a break here and uh, cut this pot up just because we're at about 20 minutes here. And so um, if we can take a break and if you'll join us in the next episode, that way it's easy to download and everything like that. Um, this is Hunkering Down with Peter Schorsch, my guest, Steve Bancor. Okay, this is part two of a very special pod that we're doing. Um, Hunkering down with us again is my dear friend, uh, one of the smartest guys in Florida politics. I I don't say that lightly or enough, uh, Steve Vancor. He is a a Democratic political consultant, more now known as much for being uh, one of the top two or three pollsters in the state. Um, And so... In the first episode and into this one, we've been talking about the uh, passing and legacy of Kristen Jacobs, um, who was Steve's romantic partner uh, for the last couple of years. And so 
he's had an interesting situation while the rest of us have been dealing with uh, reading about some of the death and dying related to COVID-19. He has been dealing with, you know, the regular dying. And that's one of the things in a way that's interesting. Life has gone on. Uh, people are still dying of heart attacks. People are still dying from the flu. People are still dying from cancer. And, and in some ways, some of this stuff has been impacted. Um, people can't get into nursing homes right now. And as Steve had talked about in the first uh, pod, they made a decision not to go to a hospice facility, you know, because that is on lockdown. And people are, you know, our rites of passage are on hold right now. Uh, we aren't able to have funerals. Um, you know, one of the sad things in China and Italy uh, two cultures that really respect uh, seniority and the elderly. Uh, people have died, and there are important burial requirements for those people and that involve their relatives, and those haven't taken place. And so one of the things that we've had to deal with as a society right now is the questions of death, and something that Steve and I, and I'll, I'll welcome your thoughts on this, there are no good answers here. And I think that that's something, you know, that, I, you know, I've said to you a couple times, I think crassly people kind of treat death and dying as like a vacation story. I tell you about my vacation and then you immediately say, well, that reminds me of the time I went to the Grand Canyon. And I'm like, well, I just did three weeks in France. Can I, can I just show you a couple photos before you turn it to you? And I find that in the death and dying process, um, yeah, I just lost this person. Oh, yeah, this reminds me of my the time I lost my uncle. And I'm like, no, 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 it's, it's still me. It's still me. I'm still dealing with this today. Um, <laughs> and I just find that one of the most frustrating until I – and here I am doing it. Uh, you know, when Michelle's dad died, I remembered it, and it reinforced the point. We just don't know – we as a society, we as – as human beings still, we just don't know how to deal with death yet. We're just not, we just don't know what to do. You know, what's interesting about this, Peter, in light of the COVID situation, I was most fearful that her death would go unnoticed, that her legacy would go unspoken. And, and again, I thank you personally, but I thank you again. You called me two or three weeks out. And said, I, I have in the Extensive Enterprises playbook, a, a former obituary writer, have at it. And it was hard to speak to Andrew, but also uh, really helpful for the grieving process. But your, the story that Andrew wrote was fantastic. Rosemary O'Hara, um, I took your lead. I called her about a week out, and uh, she's the editor of the Sun Sentinel and a close personal friend of Kristen wrote, I mean, Andrews is fantastic. She full page Sunday, the day after, um, three full stories. Derek Cam, a good friend of um, Kristen's as well, uh, wrote something for New Service of Florida that was picked up. My brother lives in Saint Aug the St. Augustine area and it was on the front page of the St. Augustine record. Uh, so I, and, and then the hundreds of people who've reached out made me feel like, you know what, we've had a service, a virtual service, be, because the press uh, and, and the, the public relations community really just jumped to to say how much they love Kristen and really is, is heartwarming 
uh, I just got I just got a text that the the Pompano Pelican did a completely original story. Didn't take any on on their experience with Kristen and Pompano Beach. It's just so it's nice. Yeah, but you're right. We don't know how to. I don't know how to deal with that. Uh, I, I feel awkward even being on this podcast because I think there's a certain expectation that I should be in hiding or in a fetal position for eternity. Um, and I and I emotionally am at some level, but. You know, and I don't want to. I don't want to throw the cliche. Kristen would have wanted me to. Of course, she would have wanted me to. She spoke about that clearly. But the advice I'm getting from a lot of my friends, you included, uh, Ron Book, who uh, called every single day. Ron and Lauren called every single day to check in on Kristen. Uh, when I said, I, I, I guess I just have to move on, and he corrected me. He said, "You're not moving on. That's a negative word. You want to. You need to move forward." Because moving on sounds like, you know, you broke up with somebody and, you, and you, you're, you're onto something else. And I, and I like that framework. And so I've been trying uh, to get up every day and, and get going, trying to deal with death in my own way. Have you been able to follow um, what's going on around you right now outside? I mean, is that or does it just kind of fade away? Uh, oh, no, no. I'm, obs- you know, Peter, I'm a obsessive reader. I don't watch TV uh, I listen to minimum of an hour podcast a day, uh, and I'm obsessively reading, um, trying to digest it, trying to understand it through a political spectrum. Um, so no, I'm 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 pretty pretty aware of what's going on. And what's your uh, what's your down and dirty? Uh, if you're uh, from your political consulting viewpoint, what do you think? What, let's keep it just to Florida right now. What do you think of the governor? Um, and the state's response to what is going on. So, you know, I try to study people. You know, you introduce me, and it's always hard to introduce me, right, because I'm a pollster. I do some political consulting. I do PR. I'm still – I'm almost 60 and trying to figure out what I want to do for a living, right? But I try to understand the world through um, the public, and I was really hopeful that America would come together in this crisis, would come together – uh, as Americans that we are, but we have become so polarized and so politicized that we're, we're already back into our corners. You know, every, I have a dear friend who's very conservative. Um, and you know, he is so Trump is doing everything perfectly. And, and I talk to any Democrat, Trump is completely screwing up. And I try to find the middle and say, there's some things he's clearly doing correctly. And there's some things he's doing wrong. Um, I think Ron DeSantis is 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 trying to balance on a high wire of uh, doing the right thing. I think his director of emergency management, full disclosure, uh, longtime friendship with with Jared Moskowitz, is doing an unbelievably good job. Um, I think his secretary of health is doing an unbelievably bad job. Uh, <laughs> We're going to be in quarantine or we're going to be in uh, social distancing for a year. I'm like, could somebody whisk this guy off and not have him speak anymore? So I think the governor is trying to balance doing the best thing for the state of Florida. And he's doing, I think, a good job of that. Should he have locked down the beaches sooner? Yes. Should he have put us on lockdown sooner? Yes. Should he have locked down on churches sooner? Yes. But is he working Emergency management, is he getting provisions? Is he getting supplies out to people? Yes. Is he being accessible? I think he's been accessible enough. Uh, I don't believe that leaders should be doing what Donald Trump is doing, which is have a a game show, uh, uh, reality TV show every day. 
so I, I, I give the governor a B plus to an A minus. Uh, and remember, through all of this, Peter, he's gone through something of his own. I mean, you look at Steve Bancor and say, during all this, Steve, who's supposed to be providing counsel to a lot of different clients, and I have been, is going through a deeply personal issue. So is the governor. He just had a child. Um, and, but we don't, we don't care about that, right? We just want him to fix our problem. Uh, and he's balancing this high wire of respecting the president who he loves and adores and is close to and trying to do the best thing in the state of Florida. So, and he's without, to some degree, his partner as somebody who just lost my life partner, uh, who, you know, every day that I knew her, Kristen and I would bounce off every idea and her, her intellect would help, you know, increase mine. Uh, and, and she's focused, I, I presume, in the first 30 days of having a baby on I'm being a, a mom and having to deal with that. So uh, I give the governor as high marks as you could give a guy in this current situation. Really? I mean, that is that is surprising. Um, number one, I disagree with that. Um, I, I increasingly – I think he's reverted back to form. Um, I think that he is – while not detached, I don't think that he's – I don't think that he's – that I don't think he's dispassionate about what is going on. Um, he reminds me of the Ron DeSantis um, that we were kind of fearful of. Um, that the 2018 early Ron DeSantis candidate, the one that the Tampa Bay Times wrote about in depth about that, you know, the person that would put on his headphones and walk through the, the halls of the uh, of Congress, not really talking to people, not really, you know, that he didn't have. You know, that he couldn't claim many friends in D.C. He would said that the, really the only lobbyist he talked to was the lobbyist for Major League Baseball, um, that this is a person who is unfamiliar with Florida um, and all of its, you know, many, 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 many communities uh, that, you know, the opposite of the Putnam Graham uh, brand of leadership that was also on the ballot in 2018, that you know, that he's basically and I know that he's limited in how he can travel, but he's you know, it's Tallahassee, Miami, the villages uh, seems to be where he is most comfortable, occasionally Jacksonville, um, but that he has no real interest or connection with, you know, the the rural part of Florida, which makes up, you know, geographically a, a tremendous part of it, but also makes up a lot of Florida soul. You know, the, he hasn't been to. Hernando County or Citrus County or uh, even, you know, uh, the farming areas or, you know, Vero Beach or places like that. I think also uh, his I, and I've written it, you know, his communications operation is for shit. Um, and that is why he's taken the hits that he's taken. We are flattening out. The curve is flattening out. The projections show that it's not going to be as bad as we thought it was going to be. And yet, He's on the bottom end of the, the poll numbers. And, well, you know, yeah, listen, I don't want to compare it to a sports analogy because you always admonish me. But, you know, Bill Belichick is right, the, the worst at um, – and I'm not saying he's a Bill Belichick. I gave him a, a B plus, A minus. But, yeah, communications-wise, uh, probably a C minus, okay? But you just pointed out something. We're doing better than average. We're doing better than comparable areas. Uh, I disagree with your point about the rural areas. They dispatched, as you know, I, I have work up here. Uh, they dispatch and they're trying to redispatch uh, telesystems to to get counselors out into the district. They, they did that in very, very short order. 
they're, they're relaunching uh, new grant money for Rebuild Florida. So at least this part of the rural state, they seem to be uh, rocking and rolling. So because you really have two areas, right? You're, you're saying communications wise, he's failing. Fair enough. OK, he's not been doing a great job. But if you're the governor, you got to figure out what do I got to do operationally to make this work versus being a good communicator. He has been less than a good communicator. I grant you that. But operationally, at some level, the proof is kind of in the pudding here. And listen, this is not me complimenting him on that. This is me saying it's a very, very difficult job. And I'm not going to Monday morning quarterback when I see all the moving parts. Well, uh, what are you coming on a podcast way? if you're not going to Monday money, Monday morning quarterback? That's, <laughs> I mean, that's what the whole damn business is about is somebody plays a game on Sunday and then, you know, you get on Monday and say, well, why didn't Bill Belichick? I, I, listen, I, get, I graded him poorly on communications, but I think operationally, I think they're doing everything they possibly can with limited resources. Remember, we're a limited government. We're a conservative state. And, you, you know, and he's a conservative governor, so you own that. But at some level, uh, and I listen, I agree with you. He should be doing a better job talking to the cities, especially for a guy who has been vetoing bills because they violate home rule. He should be the governor champion uh, of the local governments, but he's not been uh, communicating well with local governments who are really, truly, and, and not just a cliche, on the front lines of this thing. You know, and that's – all right, so I'll I'll put him back on the couch and say, number one, and I've said it to other people, if, if Michelle had a baby and I was governor, she would have made me close down the entire state in order to protect our one baby. And so I've been – I've been – I've been I, – I haven't been able to figure out the psychology there on why – like – like, I don't even know why he's traveled or violated any of the social distancing uh, issues. I would have told every reporter, hey, stand the F back. I've got a, a newborn at home. And yet, you know, I watched yesterday. They chased him down uh, as part of a gaggle. Um, that, that's one thing. And then, you know, number two. Yeah, by the way, the press that <laughs> my friends at the press that are like complaining about uh, the lack of social distancing are yeah, are in these gaggles. But by the way, don't you think the symbolism of the one glove kind of says it all? On yeah. one hand, he recognizes you need to be sterile, you need to be cautious, you need to be you know, physically prepared. On the other hand, he's not. Well, and so there goes to my second point, which is if the end goal here is to prepare for the 2024 bid, um, and I, I, I believe that in my heart of hearts, that you know he wants to set himself up. I think he has succeeded in um, in strengthening a uh, a hit or miss relationship with the president. Uh, you know we've heard reports that that you know it goes it runs hot and cold. I think he is definitely you know all of the other big states are ran by Democrats except for Texas, excuse me, um, and so. Trump needs somebody to point out, and he constantly goes to DeSantis. Uh, so I think that that's good for him. But I will say this, and this just goes to show you how quickly history moves. Um, I was going to say, nobody's thinking 2024. We're barely going to. Oh, baloney. Are you election, out of your mind? Are this you out of election. Oh, let, me, let me change the frame of that. 
that won't this won't matter in 2022 this won't matter in 2024 the public you don't think his leadership will matter in 2022 the re-election are you out of your mind let me tell you, you what's going to matter let me tell me the bigger barrier well, okay, let me tell you if let me you tell are you. not making the argument that her let entire candidacy is based around i could have done it better joe biden, i want you to go to your predicted page if joe biden wins the presidency Ron DeSantis cakewalks back into office. It'll be an off-year election, and this won't right. matter. Right. If Donald Trump wins, then you have a competitive race, and it may matter. But, Peter, the public interest shifts minute to minute. I, I, these things don't carry through. Let me give you another example. I did I Lois think, Frank. No, 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 no. Hold on. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. And she, she shepherded them through uh, uh, two hurricanes, and her— Favorabilities were off the charts. Six months later, she's running for re-election, and she's underwater. She's eight points behind. Okay, of course, we the whole campaign was just reminding them how much they loved her six months prior, and it worked. But the public sentiment—it's—it's it's what's next, what's immediate, what's now—and it, it, there'll be another issue that will supplant this. I promise you that. Um, I I I need you to get out of that house then because. Not that, not, I need, I'm not saying I need, the presidency I need, this election. I'm saying no, no, no. the I think our entire, our, entire politi- our entire way of life is now – this is Gutenberg inventing the printing press. Like we will never do any of the things that we have done the same, the same ever again. Um, I don't know that we – I mean – I may never shake another hand. You're not going to go to – 800 years in the making and we may undo the handshake. Uh, I'm, when's the next time I'm going to be in Europe? When's the next time, you know, are we going to decouple with China? Are we going to have two basic economic systems at this point driving the world? And therefore, we had talked about this Cold War with China. But if you like, I think I think, number one, we will have a complete decoupling with the Chinese economic system. And with that, you go into a default Cold War no matter what. And that's just that's just one issue amongst Amongst many, I mean, I don't think you can, like the. I mean, what does Florida's economy look like? Uh, I, number one, I let agree. me go back to let me go back to my second point, which is about the about DeSantis. On, I think that now people's opinion of him is now locked in. He now becomes another one of these 50-50 guys like Trump. You know, the idea that he was a sixty-five thirty-five person like Jeb post hurricanes or early Charlie days. That's over. This guy is now, no matter what he does and no matter what Democrat he runs, it's just going to be another 50-50, which goes to your point. The politics, we revert to our corner. I had hoped with the first year of DeSantis that we were maybe going to see a guy that was going to be able to bring back some of the Florida sunshine optimism of 55, 60 percent approval and govern with that. And I just I don't think that that's going to be there now. Um, and then another part you brought up. Did he? Are we succeeding in spite of Ron DeSantis? You know, did Jane Castor and Buddy Dyer and Rick Kreisman and Lenny Curry and Carlos Jimenez are they the heroes here because they locked us down uh, much quicker uh, and much tighter than uh, DeSantis did? That's that's the best the best point you brought up because I you know I'm a big believer in local government. I believe they're they're on the ground. They've got to make things work right, and they're not worried about. Jane Castor is not worried about protecting her left flank. She's not worried about protecting her right flank. 
She's worried about getting making the city work better. So, yeah, absolutely. The those folks, because if you look at Florida, what we're not experiencing is the is the urban spike you're seeing, not to not to the degree we're seeing it in other areas, the urban spikes. But so again, when I said in the Monday morning quarterback, we don't really know the details, A, B, C and D. And that's a failure of the governor's office. But operationally, it seems to be things are working. Could it be because we have a strong home rule part of our Constitution allows them to do what the president of the United States doesn't think of the states? Apparently, the president thinks the Tenth Amendment is merely a suggestion uh, because he has absolute and total authority. Uh, But Ron DeSantis is sort of playing that middle. So I'm withholding judgment on that. I really am to see what happens. But you might be right. uh, Uh, it's, It's the local government that's the one's taking care of business and so therefore our numbers look better fair enough um we are we are succeeding um and i read this article in bloomberg today the people that deserve the credit for it basic joe and you know ma six-pack who have somehow agreed to and are abiding by the stay-at-home rules like i think it said something like 91 percent of americans support and have engaged in the stay-at-home and don't violate them and are are basically the, you know, are the good citizens here. And we didn't, you know, we don't need an authoritarian government to enforce this stuff. Um, I think that was the name of the Bloomberg article. It was like, hey, you know, surprisingly, we're pretty good at this. Uh, no, and this, this goes back to my core point, which is the American people are good people. And they, they believe in fair play, hard work, et cetera. And when told, hey, everybody stay home, like you said, over 90% of the people are actually doing that. And so, that's the number one thing you can do to stop the spread of this virus. And the American people are doing it, right? So what are the operational things that the governor and the president have to do? Make sure there's masks, make sure there's ventilators, make sure the operations of the, of the communities are being taken care of. The excess beds are being taken care of community by community by community. Should, like I said, should the governor shut down the beaches sooner to prevent spring break? Absolutely. Should they be taking better care of people in nursing homes? Absolutely. Because those are things that are under the regulatory framework of the state. And so the most important thing you just identified, 90 percent of people are actually behaving well. Uh, and I went to Publix yesterday and I, and I was like, you know, I, all but with a hazmat suit on. And, and it's a very interesting perspective to walk up and down the aisles at Publix. Uh, first of all, to be surprised to see toilet paper. I'm like, dude, um, I already have 100 rolls. Actually, I don't. But to see people with masks on and then you see somebody without a mask or without gloves and you think to yourself, what the heck are they doing? Uh, so I, I, I think we're in agreement here, but you're, you're more critical of the governor than I am. I'm just mindful of how complicated his world has to be right now with relatively limited resources. So he's got um, some people doing good stuff. Some people, I think, completely screwing up. Um, and and you're probably right. If uh, if this turns out to be four thousand dead instead of seven thousand, that's going to be a lot easier. You know, I I can see it on Facebook. I can see it on social media, which I think I watch a little closer than you. Um, not that that's an advantage. I just see, you know, I see our comments page, and I just see people really upset that the economy was tanked um that you know people wanted to risk herd immunity and that kind of thing and um i don't know here's my last part with this and i'm writing you know i've really tried to string together some good 
uh, think pieces right now. And the one that I'm working on right now is, um, you know, where's your empathy, brother? Um, you know, I see yesterday at that press conference, they were talking about fucking wrestling and Tiger Woods. And I just, I didn't hear any time by anybody from the president or Ron DeSantis say, hey, why don't we take a moment? We've lost 500 Floridians. That's a really terrible, uh, you know, threshold to have passed. And we still have, you know, 10, you know, 20,000 uh, cases. I'd like you to take a moment and join me in, you know. I uh, completely agree. That's why I'm like it's C minus on a PR. And didn't anybody raise their hand and say, hey, Governor, I, I hear you on the wrestling thing. You're economically correct, but dude, this is going to look so bad in, in, in the world of Twitter and memes and stuff that you're, you, you're just recategorized wrestling as an essential service, just like the Wednesday night reversal on his church services thing. Yeah. You know, yeah, just, you wish there was somebody in the room that would raise their hand and say, governor, no. Please listen to me. This will hurt you. It will hurt the state's perception. And apparently nobody raised their hand to say those things. Um, all right. So we are approaching uh, another uh, juncture. Um, do we want to go? <laughs> do we want to splice this up? Or do you, uh, are you, have I, have I, I can notice just getting you talking about politics. I, I got you raised up and. Um, well, because like, you're so wrong about so many things, you get me all animated. Well, that's part of, you know, listen. <laughs> some friends you have to like, you know, get them out and take them to the bar. You know, I just roll the ball out to you on, hey, what do you think about this? And that gets you going. Um, let me ask you, have you had any time to consume anything pop culture related so that you can answer the last question that I ask everybody, which no, is. No, I didn't watch Tiger King. I know you. I, that's that would be so beneath you. You're you've never been a television guy. I always come to you with these metaphors. I'm like, well, this is just like The Sopranos, and you're just like, what? And you, you never know. You no, never... okay. Funny. Um, so Kristen and I actually do own a TV. Obviously, it's now my TV, and it hasn't come on. And I am not sure. <laughs> I'm like that guy who's got the computer. Uh, I, I'm not sure how to turn it on. On that uh, note. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I don't have anything cultural to add, although I am reading a lot about uh, – I'm afraid – Peter, I'll close on this. I'm genuinely afraid for the future of our democracy. And I said this to a friend yesterday. He goes, come on, you're overstating it. And after 15 minutes of talking with him, he started to explain to me – this is a very conservative, dear friend of mine – he started to explain to me why he does think our democracy is crumbling before our very eyes. And that was before Donald Trump said he has supreme and complete authority over the states. Um, well, it's hard not to respond to that and say, you know, it reminds me of this conversation. I, I, I used to do these lectures for the State Department here. There's a they would bring in groups of journalists from around the world. For some reason, they always ended up in. Tampa Bay. They would go D.C., San Francisco, and then here. I think it had to do with the Stavro Center and Mel Sembler and all this stuff. Um, and so they would come and they would talk to the Tampa Bay Times and they would talk to me. 
Um, and they were they were fascinating conversations. And I remember having a conversation with a group of Chinese journalists, and this is now six, seven years ago. Um, and I remember the person saying, uh, remarking how he would much rather have safety than freedom. And this is a journalist saying it. And I think that is the false choice people are presented with right now. They think that they are choosing between safety um, and security versus freedom. Um, they think that the government can somehow keep them safe from the foreign hordes of viruses and undocumented workers. And with that, they are willing to tolerate uh, a loss of certain freedoms. And you're right. I think it is. I think it is a scary. We, we scary did it. Moment. We did it after 9/11. We passed the Patriot Act. The government right now is allowed a special uh, tribunal, a special organization can go in, look at your phone, your internet history, who you're calling, where you're going, everything about you, without even going to uh, a separate branch of government for review. That was supposed to be a temporary measure put into place, and it's become permanentized. Think about this. Since 2000, the world is losing two democracies every three years during this crisis, and most democracies crumble with either a real or an imagined uh, crisis. This is clearly a real crisis, and this is the time, I believe, to be strengthening, not weakening our democracy. People go, oh, come on, isn't this overstated? The governor of Ohio suspended, basically ended an election, okay? And was told by the independent courts he doesn't have the legal authority to do it, and he did it anyway. Mm -hmm. We just lost a member of the European Union, which requires democracy. Hungary, and I'll be like, oh, Hungary. I'm Hungarian. My family's from Hungary. Well, guess what? You come from an autocratic regime now. They're officially and fully an autocratic regime. Several countries, including the United States, have been downgraded by The Economist, which ranks them. We're no longer in the top 20. Uh, and all of the markers are there. Uh, as I jokingly say, we nobody came down off the mountain with three, oops, now two. See, there's a cultural reference. Now two stone tablets saying our democracy is guaranteed to exist. And we're seeing the fraying of it right before our very eyes. And as, as the president of the United States says, I have supreme authority over the states. And thankfully, conservatives are pushing back. I want to give you two other quick examples. When FDR tried to pack the courts, you know who stood up to him? The Democrats. They said, no, 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 that's not good. That's, that's, you're, you're, you're changing the rules midterm. You can't do that. And they put a stop to him. And, his, and, and then backlash, they put term limits on the president of the United States. When Barack Obama was president of the United States, he had 12 months to appoint a Supreme Court justice. The Senate said they wouldn't even consider it. First time since Andrew Jackson, the Senate did that, okay? Let me ask you a simple question. If Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the obvious person, yeah. were some going to resign tomorrow, do you think Donald Trump would have the opportunity to appoint a justice or not? I think that the, this Senate would give it to him. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So for with the rules that are in place for one president don't apply to rules that are in place. That is one of the reasons the economist no longer has us in the top 20. On so that I worry note, about All right. That positive note. <laughs> From the death of democracy to the death of a beloved lawmaker. Uh, Thank you, Steve Ancor, for joining us today. Um, You know, you're one of the best guys, and I just uh, really appreciate it. All right, man. Take care. Bye.